Um, so this morning, we come to a massive passage of Scripture. Um, and there is not enough time to dig into it exhaustively. Uh, but we're going to do our best this morning um, to try to understand what's going on in this passage. Before we dive in, let me pray for us one more time. God, as we come now to your word, we pray that your spirit would come in these moments and that your spirit would do an illuminating work in our hearts. That, God, you wouldn't just give us knowledge, that you would give us understanding that brings transformation. Lord, help us to see Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, the Bible is a complex book, right? Maybe you've heard it said before that, that the Bible was written by over 40 authors. Um, it was written in, in at least three languages over a period of 1,500 years, written on three separate continents. And it's composed of all kinds of various genres. In, in the Bible, we have, we have history. We have, we have cultic rituals and obligations. We have epistles or letters. We have apocalyptic visions. We have lament. We have songs. So it's very diverse. And yet amidst all of this diversity of thought, there is a unifying structure to the Bible. It's not just a compilation of writings. It's a cohesive epic that tells one overarching story. The plot line of the scripture is, is, is seamed together by the thread of God's coming kingdom. Graham Goldsworthy defines the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place experiencing his rule and blessing. God's people in God's place experiencing his rule and blessing. As, as the opening scene of scripture is, is, is put before us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that's exactly what we find. We encounter God creating the heavens and the earth. He's, he's speaking life into existence. And at the climax of creation, he makes Adam and Eve in his own image, and he puts them in this garden paradise where it says that he walks with them in the cool of the day. The first humans are given a divine mandate to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it and take dominion over creation. They're given liberty to eat of every tree in the garden except one. God tells them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so here in this opening scene, everything is in its perfect order. You have man under God's rule and blessing. You have creation under man's dominion. You have the humans together in this collaborative partnership. You have the earth yielding its increase and providing for the human's need. This is life as it was intended. This is the paradigm of God's kingdom. It's God's people in God's place experiencing God's blessing. But as we know, tragedy quickly enters the picture. Adam and Eve fall into sin. They transgress God's command. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, they're cast out of the Garden of Eden because sin separates from a holy God. Brett helped us to see that reality last Sunday. And as a result of the fall, God's people are no longer in God's place and they're no longer experiencing God's blessing. In Genesis chapter 3, God essentially begins to litigate against Adam and Eve and the serpent who tempted tempted them. And he begins to unpack the curses invoked on creation through their disobedience. Now there's going to be enmity 
There's going to be pain. There's going to be strife and struggle. This is going to be the normal experience of life because of sin. And yet in the middle of these curses, there's also this amazing promise embedded. God tells the humans there's going to be this ongoing struggle between the human race and the serpent, but eventually the head of the serpent is going to be crushed by a future descendant of Eve, even though his heel will be bitten in the process. It's, it's a picture of salvation that offers the human race hope that one day a rescue is going to arrive from this seed of Eve who will suffer to save the human race from the curse. And this promise of salvation alongside of the consequences of sin actually frame up the storyline of Scripture and of human history. It's a story of struggle. It's a story of strife, but also a promise of salvation. And so the Bible is this epic about a quest for what was lost in the fall. It's, it's about God's people getting back to God's place so they can experience his rule and his blessing. In Genesis chapter 12, God zeroes in on this one man named Abram. He later renames him Abraham, and he invites this man into relationship. He says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great. And, and from your loins, Abraham, will come a great nation. And through you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And to experience that blessing, God tells Abraham, you, you've got to leave your hometown, Abram. You, you've got to leave Ur, and I'm, I'm going to send you to the place I'm going to show you. He invites Abraham into this pilgrimage of faith. And 25 years later, God finally gives Abraham a son named Isaac. And through Isaac comes Jacob. And through Jacob come the 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And by the end of the book of Genesis, God has formed a people for himself. But because of a famine, this people has migrated to Egypt where they end up enslaved. And so the books of Exodus and Numbers tell the story of God leading his people out of Egypt to the place God has for them. And along the way, they stop at Mount Sinai where God gives his law to his people. And this law is an invitation into relationship. It's, it's the way that God wants to rule over his people and give them blessing. And he tells them, if you'll live under my rule, I will bless you. In the book of Joshua, God finally leads his people into the promised land. Joshua takes the people into Canaan. And by the end of the book of Joshua, each of the 12 tribes has a piece of the land in Palestine. God's people are now in God's place. But they're not yet experiencing his full blessing because there's this common refrain that we come to in the book of Judges that says, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The people needed the right king to lead them in faithfulness. And as we've seen in our series, as we've been looking at the life of David, David is God's choice for a king. Last week we read in 2 Samuel 6 about the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant is brought back to Jerusalem, the city of David. And so as we come now to chapter 7, let's not miss what's happening in, in the big picture story of the Bible. In this unfolding story of God's kingdom. By 2 Samuel 7, what we have is we now have God's people in God's place. 
And the symbol of God's presence now centralized among them. And chapter 7 begins by telling us that the Lord has given them rest on every side from their enemies. And so God's people are in God's place and they're beginning to experience God's blessing. All seems well. And in fact, we might be tempted to think that this is the beginning of the end of the story. But there's this lingering question here, it seems, for David. Yes, there's, there's, there's peace at the moment. The strife and the struggle of war with these other nations is, is absent. But the question seems to be this. Is this the full reality of God's blessing? David is unsettled. His present peace feels incomplete. I, I wonder if you've had that sense before. Have you ever had the experience of finding yourself in this moment of happiness, this moment of joy? And even while you're in it, even while you're in this moment of joy, there's a feeling of anxiety because you know that you can't keep it. You ever found yourself there? I used to have this, this feeling every Christmas as a boy. The joy of opening presents was sullied by the reality that as soon as the last present was opened, it was over and the magic was gone. And it would be another 365 days until it would happen again. You couldn't capture the feeling of Christmas and keep it. Hannah Arendt once said that the trouble with human happiness is that it is constantly beset by fear. What we really long for is an eternal Christmas. And the Bible's word for this is shalom. Our, our English translation of shalom is, is peace. And this, this really doesn't do the word justice. Because God's shalom is, is more than the absence of hostility. It's, it's the presence of warmth in security. It's, it's the fullest sense of peace. The, the peace that comes from well-being and, and a state of true rest. It's, it's the wholeness and the completeness that comes from God's abiding presence. And here in 2 Samuel 7, there's a fragility that David senses with his kingdom. Yes, the 12 tribes are finally united under his leadership. And the ark is in Jerusalem. And yes, Israel is, is at rest from her enemies. But the question is, how can you capture this moment in a bottle? How can you keep it? How can you secure the kingdom permanently? How can Israel experience shalom? It's a good question. What is the way to true rest? Maybe you've asked that question before. How can I experience a sense of wholeness and completeness and fulfillment and satisfaction in my life? How can I find abiding peace? Well, David has an idea. We see it in verse 2 of, of chapter 7. It tells us that the king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits Inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, Go and do all that is on your mind, for the Lord is with you. 
David's idea is this. He wants to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant. He looks around and he goes, man, I've built myself a house. I've got a cedar house. The central symbol of God's presence is in curtains. I want to build God a house. Now that David has established Jerusalem as the capital city of the kingdom, he's thinking, man, let's give God a permanent dwelling. Let's secure his presence among us. And here's what I think is going on in David's heart and mind as he thinks this way. I think he's thinking that maybe, just maybe, if I build a dwelling place for the ark, that we can dwell secure permanently. Like if we can secure God's presence among us, then we can feel truly secure. Or maybe if I do something really nice for Yahweh, I can secure his protection and blessing. It was common in the ancient Near East to relate to a deity in a sort of quid pro quo way. Often a king or a leader would build a temple or restore the temple of of a god in return for his favor in battle or to procure blessing over his kingdom. There there are lots of examples of this in ancient literature. And, And it's possible here that David is falling into this sort of thinking with Yahweh. God, let me build you a house and maybe that'll incline you to keep on blessing me and protecting me. Is that how the kingdom works? Is it achieved through our efforts? Can we manufacture shalom? Right now there's this awakening that's happening on the campus of Asbury Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. Maybe you've seen this on the news or or read about this. What began as a a simple chapel service on February 8th has turned into this 24-hour-a-day worship gathering that's been going on for, I think this is day 12, if my math is right. People from all over the country are are traveling to experience it. It's been described as this environment of of worship and humility. Some have described a a palpable sense of God's presence. People are confessing their sins. They're, they're, They're experiencing renewal of faith. Some are even calling it a revival. And as I've read about this, I've thought, man, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have a similar experience here in Wichita? Where the Spirit took charge over our plans and our calendars gave way to spending unhurried time before the Lord. Wouldn't it be amazing if the Lord moved in such a way that people began to confess their sins and to repent of their sins and to experience the freedom that the Spirit brings? Wouldn't it be awesome if there was a move of God that led many to faith? Don't you want that sort of a refreshing? But we need to be careful of thinking that we could manufacture such an awakening. Undoubtedly, some are going to Asbury right now in hopes of capturing what is happening there and bringing it back with them to wherever they're from, as if revival is a strand of COVID that can be caught and spread. We're perhaps tempted to think that with the right conditions, with the right environment, that we can invoke the Spirit of God to move. But this This kind of thinking is is exactly what was going on with David's thinking to build a house for God and to gain his blessing. And what this narrative is teaching us, what it's telling us is that we cannot manipulate the kingdom of God forward. 
Jesus said that the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound and you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with God's spirit. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan and, and pulled the plug on David's grand plans. And in response to David's desire to build a house for God, God says in reply, you're going to build me a house? No, that's not how this is going to work, David. I'm going to build you a house. God wants to make it explicitly clear to David that the way the kingdom is made secure is not by David's doing for him, but by his doing for David. There are times, says Eugene Peterson, when our grand human plans to do something for God are seen after a night of prayer to be a huge human distraction from what God is doing for us. Friends, the, the way of the kingdom is never us doing for God. We can't earn God's favor by, bless, by, by, by striving for it. We don't earn his blessing by, by striving for it. We don't experience God's peace. We don't experience shalom in a sort of quid pro quo arrangement with the Almighty. We can't manifest the kingdom. We can't name it and claim it. We need to let that sink in. I wonder if you walked in this morning striving to advance the kingdom through your own efforts. We do this at a personal level by thinking that with enough spiritual disciplines, insert prayers and chants and meditations and fasts and scriptures memorized, that with enough spiritual disciplines, we can cajole God into our program and our timeline. Input spiritual effort, output God's blessing. It's not how the kingdom works. We do this at a political level by thinking we can advance the kingdom by force if we get the right coalition organized, if we get the right leader in office, if we get the right legislation on the docket. Fill in the blank. If we could only get blank, then our family, our community, our nation would be whole, would be secure, would have peace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 reminds us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. David had to be reminded that the way things work in God's kingdom is not him doing for God, but God doing for him. Peterson says, full of what he was going to do for God, David is subjected to a comprehensive reversal of what God has done, is doing, and will do for and in David. Notice this in verse 8. God says, this is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all. All your enemies before you. I want you to notice as we keep reading the repetition of the first person singular. Pay attention to all the eyes in these verses. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. 
Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I order judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you, David. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as, I did, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Twenty-three times in this passage, God is the first person subject. This message couldn't be any clearer. The permanent security and rest that David yearns for will come through Yahweh alone. Friends, we experience shalom by grace, not works. What God reveals to David in these verses is that the hope of the kingdom, the way it's going to come into fullness, will be through a future son from his line. These verses are referred to by theologians as the Davidic covenant. Here, God makes some incredible promises to David that picks up on language that goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. It goes all the way back to the promises God made to Abraham so long ago. He picks up those same promises, the promise of a great name, of of a place to dwell, of protection and blessing. And all of those are now tied specifically and directly to the Davidic king. But what God tells David is, David, it's not going to be you. God makes it clear that David's going to die. And in fact, it won't be David's immediate son either. Though though Solomon will be the one who builds, builds the house for the ark, Solomon's going to end up doing wrong. And he has to be disciplined by God. Yet sometime after, what God tells David through Nathan is that there's going to be this future son of yours who comes and he's going to live in relationship with me like a son to a father and God's faithful love is never going to leave him and and it's through this king it's through this Davidic king that the kingdom of God will be established forever if you know the story of the kings of Judah then you know that after David and Solomon things get really depressing I mean, with few exceptions, most of the kings of Judah are miserable individuals. Far from living in a father-son relationship with Yahweh, most of them live in sin and lead the nation into rebellion. So much so that God finally says, I'm going to let you be taken captive. And the Babylonians come in and take them into captivity. This is a far cry from God's shalom. But even as this is going on, the prophets of Israel and Judah begin to look back to these promises in 2 Samuel 7. And they begin to foretell of a time coming when a Davidic son will appear and rule in righteousness. Listen to the prophet Isaiah about 250 years after 2 Samuel 7. Many of us are familiar with these verses. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For a child will be born for you. 
a son will be given us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. We read these verses at Christmas time. Because 950 years after God made these promises to David and 700 years after Isaiah uttered this prophecy, Jesus of Nazareth was born. He was born in the line of David. And he was revealed to be God's own son. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. In fact, as the Apostle Paul would tell the Corinthians, in him, every one of God's promises is yes and amen. He is the one who has lived perfectly in a father-son relationship with Yahweh. He is the one who rules forever. He is the one who ushers us in to God's kingdom and blessing. And if you're here this morning... And you're searching for peace. If you walked in this morning, go, man, I just, deep in my soul, I long for rest. What the message of the Bible is telling us is that you'll only truly ever find it in Jesus. Jesus is the climax of the story of God's kingdom. He's, he's the one king who came and made a way for God's people to once again dwell with him and experience his blessing. See, to experience true shalom. We needed a king who could conquer our greatest enemies. The enemies of Satan and sin and death. We needed someone who could fulfill that promise so long ago in Genesis 3. Who could stomp the head of the snake for us. And Jesus has done that. He entered this world and lived a life of perfect obedience. He offered his life as a worthy sacrifice for sin. When he hung on the cross, the venom of sin was in him. He absorbed the wrath of God for the sins of the world in himself so that we could be freed and forgiven and set free from the curse. And by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus reigns forever. We read 2 Samuel 7 we go, how is a king going to rule forever? And the answer is, by rising from the dead. He's the king once and for all. And see, what this means for us is that God's people are now those who believe in his son. Which means anybody can get in on this. And God's place is now the church. The New Testament teaches us that he indwells the assembly of the saints. That God is even with us this morning. That he tabernacles among his people by his indwelling spirit until Jesus comes again and takes us to be with himself where he is. Because ultimately God's place is a new heavens and a new earth where we will reign with him forever. And God's rule and God's blessing are the teachings of Jesus and the guidance of the Holy Spirit that is within us. And so friends, listen, God is still gathering a people for himself to dwell with him forever. Right now, Jesus is preparing a place for his disciples, and he is offering abundant life. He is offering shalom. He is offering peace and rest for all who trust in him and follow him. Jesus says, come to me, 
all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who are thirsty. Come to the water and drink. He is the king who can satisfy us and secure us and save us and lead us faithfully and show us the way because he's the king of righteousness. As we close, I want us to notice David's response to God. We find it in verse 18. 2 Samuel 7, 18 says this. Then King David went in and sat in the Lord's presence. I love what Eugene Peterson says here. He says, David sat. That might be the single most critical act that David ever did. By sitting down, David got himself out of the driver's seat and deliberately and reverently placed himself before God, his king. Psalm 46 verse 10 invites us to be still and to know that he is God. Another translation says, cease striving. Stop. Sit down. David sat before the Lord and worshipped. In verses 18 through 24, David just begins to praise the Lord for his goodness and his grace. He says in verse 18, who am I, Lord? What is my house that you've brought me this far? David was a nobody. He was a little shepherd boy. Forgotten even by his own father. Wasn't even invited to the feast when they were looking for a king. But God showed him grace and favor. And David responds to that. He says, God, who am I? What is my family that you've brought us thus far? He just begins to worship God for his goodness and his grace, his undeserved kindness. And then in verse 25, he begins to, to ask God to do what he said he would do. Now, Lord God, fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant. God, do what you'll say you'll do. This is a great way to pray, by the way. Just pray the scriptures back to God. God, this is what you said and by faith, I believe it, and I'm asking you to do it. David prays, and then he petitions. This morning, we're invited to respond like David, to sit before the Lord, to sit before David's greater son, Jesus, in reverence. To sit and to worship him, and to sit in faith-fueled prayer for his kingdom to come. I wonder what plagues you this morning. What worries you? What unsettles you? What if you stopped your striving? What if you stopped your trying to bring the kingdom by manipulation and by effort? And what if you sat before King Jesus this morning? Pastor Tim Keller reminds us that if Jesus truly rose from the dead, then everything is going to be okay. Jesus is the king. He's alive. 
He's well. He's on the throne. Jesus right now is inviting us to cast all of our cares and our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. Friends, because of Jesus, shalom is not only possible, it's promised. Jesus is ruling over the cosmos, and he has promised that he's going to return again soon. And when he does, all the remnants of sin that remain will be gone in a moment. Satan will be utterly, eternally cast down, and we will reign with him forever. But even now, even right now, in this moment, we can rest. We can truly rest because we know how the story ends. And we know the one who rules over us. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to Him. Because happy are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray together. Father, so often and so easily we seek peace in all the wrong places. And we try to usher in the kingdom by force. And what you're inviting us to this morning is to be still and to sit before the true king. And to receive by faith the promise of shalom, the promise of rest, the promise of security, the promise of wholeheartedness, the promise of contentment. It's all found in the true king. It's all found in you, Jesus. Lord, help us to sit before you this morning. Help us to receive the kingdom that Jesus, you have ushered in and that you will consummate. Help us to receive it by faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.